great. So here we are for the latest recording of Future Visuals podcast, Building New Realities. And I am super delighted to be talking today to Professor Karen Chan, who I've had lots of chats with and encounters with um, over the last year or two, both of us living in Brighton and both of us loving a digital R&D and exploration. So Karen, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Tim, actually. It's, uh, I'm going to look forward to this. Fantastic yeah. questions. Thank you. Oh, pleasure. Yes, so, okay. yeah, just, just to give you a, a brief introduction, because your bio and your accomplishments and your various papers are, are, are very impressive. So I'm just, I, I thought I'd just start with three titles, otherwise we'll be here for the whole podcast as I read out your accolade. But yeah, to give people a bit of a picture of, of what you do, you're Professor of Digital Transformation Design, Professor for, I can't even say it, so up there, Professorial Lead on Connected Futures and Professor of Digital Transformation Design. Obviously you work at uh, University of Brighton and have worked at lots of other academic institutions uh, prior mm -hmm. to that. But yeah, I mean, just as a general question, what attracted you to working in digital design, which presumably yeah. then led on to the sort of transformation aspects? Well, I think I'm going to give quite um, a, a unique answer to this, but I think that's similar for lots of people of our generation, how we came in to be doing this. Because, of course, this didn't exist, did it, when we were going through school and all the rest of it. So um, I started buying um, a, an electric guitar off the lad at the post office for four quid when I was 14. <laughs> and then I slowly but surely, hanging out with some other lads who'd got pedals, I don't know if anyone remembers music pedals, realised I was much more interested in the pedals than I was in the music. So here began this like lifelong fascination with machines, but particularly how you can get qualitative experience out of machines, which is kind of what music is anyway. Musical instruments are always complex, even if you can't plug them in. So I went off on this journey and I went and did design at college and um, <clears throat> no one ever quite knew where to put me. So I ended up doing fine art and I got shoved into sculpture because I was, I was doing experimental electronics basically but it was linked to light shows or to, or to sound. <clears throat> and um, then, yeah, so my work was um, in the 90s, um, experimental uh, installation and performance. And then I started to get um, commissions to do, uh, like my first touch screen and my first website was in 1994. And my first uh, MIDI and haptics work was uh, 97. And so, I started to get commissioned by people like Absolute Vodka and Ministry of Sound to do stuff for the big club nights and to do launch parties. And there was generally large in it. <laughs> <laughs> and we, of course, we, we were messing about with early VR at that point as well, Tim, which I'm sure you'll remember, with yeah. a little red and green. That was it, wasn't it? I, I remember just little red and green things. And we'd like, we'd run this club night and we'd set up a dentist chair and you could lie in the dentist chair and put this VR helmet on and watch these two little squares of red and green jiggle around. And it'd be like, wow, it's amazing. Yeah. Oh, it's, kind it's of, a brain machine. It's a brain machine. That's it. Thank you. Yes. The brain machines. So there was a lot of really experimental creativity. I suppose there always has been in and around music. But um, as, as technology became more and more affordable, we could all do more and more uh, uh, way out things, you know. So that's how I got into digital because 
by the late 90s, I was one of the only people who had designed really big, complex, interactive things that engaged people. And I set up a business and I started doing CD-ROMs and CD-pluses. I don't know if you remember them. Mm. Yeah, and all kinds of uh, design, really. My yeah. company was called Anarchy Advertising. It sounds like, yeah, there's lots of crossover and how we got interested in this space. And, and yeah. interested in like, what the pedal could do. Yeah. Um, for which, for which you know, there's also not a um, structured notation. When you observe yeah. the pedal, like you've got the pedal, you're looking at the pedal, you're hearing how it's changing the sound. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you feel you can, you can sort of almost create your own um, little yeah. language of learning or understanding on how it happens. You're right. That's a really good advice. Yeah, really good assessment, actually, because you can jam with it, can't you? Yeah. More to the point. And I'm thinking now back to the, the 50s and 60s with oscillators. And the first computer graphics that were ever made uh, were by reverse engineering an oscillator. So the oscillator was there to monitor a signal. And somebody thought, well, and who, who it was, James Laposky, I think, was one of the first significant people to be recognized for it. They started thinking, well, if we reverse engineer the signal, we can create beautiful graphics. And that's how computer graphics came about. So I kind of love all this. Absolutely love how machines and electricity and signals can make poetry. That's kind of the heart of the matter for me we don't know why i'm like this <laughs> yeah, that's another that's another podcast born, born this way <laughs> yeah with encouragement yeah so um so that's interesting so this so this era of uh, of building new realities obviously the podcast is called building new realities we definitely it feels quite tangible that we're in an era of building new realities but really okay. something that's kind of driven you right from the beginning of your it is really yeah field. yeah so another big part of your background or cv is is digital design yeah which is a, which is a phrase that gets gets bandied around a lot and perhaps yeah. perhaps now we start to talk a bit less about digital because it's just design now and mm. we're kind mm -hmm. of um, accepting of the the tools and processes around yeah. that but in terms of the sort of building new realities digital digital design methodology that obviously yeah. you've been doing for a while now what do you think the the the, the key drivers are in when you're starting a digital design project do you would you start with the outputs do you start with the problem or do yeah. you go a little bit more kind of cerebral on that because I, I know you're very interested in how where how people interact yeah, yeah, I am interested in the, the relationship between people and machines and, and, and where, how and why those, those things converge. So no, um, I always started and my business, uh, my first digital business in the 90s, we, we always started with problem definition. So if people came in and said, we want a website, we'd say, well, hang on, why do you want a website? And it's like, well, because everyone else has got a website. And it's like, well, let's find out what you're trying to do. And then we'll inch forward to defining how we should do that. So... For me, the problem always comes first. And then there's a range of technical solutions that you can bring in and engineer and design and build and all the rest of it to inch towards solving that problem. And of course, sometimes you need an immersive environment, for example, for, for you know, we, we know that training works much better in, in an immersive environment than just from reading a book. So, you know, that the problem defines the materiality of the outcome for me which is why I tend to be kind of um, domain agnostic. I've worked across so many different domains and with so many different technologies. 
because for me it's always about what's the problem who are the people and what's the social because it's always a social outcome it's social economic political cultural outcome mm-hmm. and then you work out what technologies can help you achieve that so it's good to know that the the the, the methodology for solving the the, the, the issue is what is the problem we're trying to solve as ever and, and just as we sort of move out of um your background into into um some some more contemporary question what is an autopiotic species <laughs> so self-indulgent sometimes um, basically, <laughs> it's a real thing um I, when i my first postdoctoral post was at the open university um as part of the complexity and design research group. And within that, I was part of computational design. So it's quite easy to understand in terms of computing that um, things, um, things emerge from component parts. And sometimes they emerge in a, in, a, in a way that can't be predicted, they emerge on their own. And you can see it in nature as well, that you know the way that things evolve. So really I think um, autopoiesis, technically it comes from complexity science, and it's the capacity to self-make. Hmm. Right. So we are a, we are a species that self-makes, but what you know in a, in a really simple level, like most biological systems. But what really interests me is that I think we self-make on really more sophisticated levels as well through language and culture and content and rhetoric and you know all the rest of it. And what does self-make mean in that context? Because I get it in terms of biology and evolution. Yeah. <laughs> I also get it in terms of like the patterns you see across nature, right? It's very easy to see a pattern in your thumb that also exists in a leaf or a tree. Yeah, there's, yeah there's absolutely. Less, yeah, there's a crossover there. Yeah, like if you work with any form of generative system, it's hard to look at a tree without seeing mathematics, I would suggest. Mm. Anyway, um, the, the, the answer to your question, how are we self-making through our, our content? We don't know, actually. And that's the crux of my research. We, we know that brains are neuroplastic mm. and we know, I don't know if you can f- actually feel it now, we've been locked down for so long. I'm, I'm losing depth per- perception and going slightly cross-eyed and all. So we're already adapting. So most species that are self-making are complex and adaptive. So what I'm interested in is the things that we make and our tools and our technologies, how are they feeding back into our evolution really? But for me, it's from a cognitive and a social point of view. It's not, you know, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, am I? You know, I'm, I'm interested in, um, in what we put out and how it comes back. So, yes, it's an interaction I'm interested in, isn't it? So you've touched on, interesting you touched on um, our short-term evolution in lockdown with yeah. like depth perception. I, I, I had to go and get a pair of glasses because I've been sitting in front of this 47 inch screen for like yeah. 12 months now. Uh, and, 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 and I noticed like something's happening with time as well. That's yeah. difficult to put one's hands on. Um, yeah, it's kind of standing still, but also um, compressing or something. I don't know. <laughs> That's yeah, how it's, it's like the lack of, it's like the lack of different data or different information. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was writing a, a little post yesterday about how, how I didn't understand how, how music was so undervalued in our society because music's been a real saviour in lockdown. Because yeah. it's like going to the same room and changing the weather. You know, yeah. just the ability to, 
yes change what, what you're what you're feeling well it is actually a bit of a worry about this lack of input you know because you you've, I, we, I keep referring to last year and i mean 2019 because 2020 just didn't happen it was like a freeze frame mm. But it was like a, a year-long freeze frame. I mean, what is that? It's some sort of Polish um, art movie. <laughs> no, you know what I mean? It's it's very rarefied environment. And imagine for like uh, small children, the amount of interaction that they should be going through as the brains are evolving. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm not alarmist. Uh, it is what it is and we are where we are. And, and, you know, we're on planet Earth. Nothing ever works out perfect, does it? Let's face it. But there are very, very particular outcomes as a result of, of this, this enforced environment for so long. And what do you think of like the, the, the slightly broader societal, potential societal impact of COVID? Obviously, companies like ourselves, you know, who work in immersive, you know, when COVID kicked off beginning of 2019, you know, we just felt very lucky to be working uh, in a space that was suited to it. And, uh, you know, and we thought, okay, great. You know, everyone's going to be wanting to, to, to work here, you know, remotely or virtual. There's some kind of big uptick yeah. in enthusiasm. Um, and then there was almost a sort of a, a plateau of, of sort of sympathy or like people just trying to make sure people felt okay. Um, yeah. That they were working in that way. Like you say, nothing works out as we expect in, in, on planet earth so on the one hand we've got as a result of 2020 people going everyone's going to work remotely and yeah. it's like an over overextension overreaction but do you think this will create a i mean i was asking people this six months ago so it's weird that it's still actually a contemporary, contemporary question you know do you think uh, as soon as uh, injections are issued that it will be business as usual get, get the sandwich shops working again what's your take on well, how this might have affected the way, way we work. I don't think any of us expected this rapid and acceleration uh, of the digital transformation of our society <clears throat> and our work patterns. And I am a huge fan of digital transformation for very obvious reasons. But um, under these circumstances, a lot of it's been done very badly. Mm. And we're now at a point of no return. We've already um, lost half the high street. I mean, I don't have a lot. I'm not a fan of shopping as a leisure pursuit. That was engineered as a, as a capitalist mechanic. You know, we don't need shops to congregate. So I think we'll still want to congregate as human beings. It, it's, it's, it's like we want to, you know, eat and sleep. It's part of uh, what, what we are. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't envisage that we will reboot massive um, shopping centres. Or, or, and, you know, I gave a talk for an organization called Big Light last May, a virtual, my first virtual talk. And um, it was about, um, I don't know if you saw Travis Scott's gig in Fortnite or you heard yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, of course he did. It's yeah. Tim Flynn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it was, I just absolutely loved it. And I thought, and I was saying in this talk to brands, I said, I'd be getting on the phone. You know, you could uh, run, run Black Friday in the GTA looting mod. It'd be absolutely great fun. People are already punching each other over tellies for real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really punch each other over tellies because it'd be a laugh. So yeah. there's lots of things that um, it'd be better to do virtually, like punching each other for a telly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> things that it's better to do for real, like building friendships and uh, you know solving problems. Sometimes you need 
all your senses to be involved in, in decision-making. I think your intuition's atrophied. And I think serendipity is atrophied. And these are kind of our, our super senses, really. The, if, you know, if you look at Dar any form of Darwinism, it implies that those are the things that are going to be our, you know, senses of the future. When, when, when the bodies we're currently inhabiting become our, our limbic system or whatever's going to happen. Do you think serendipity is a, um, is a, uh, a physical force, is a, is a legitimate force, uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a new, not Newtonian, obviously, but you know, it is a force along those lines uh, that influences the outcome of work. It's oh yeah, absolutely. Because I'm a I'm a, a Dadaist, really. If you want anyone wants to look that up, which links to surrealism and the notion of the happy accident. Mm -hmm. There's always got to be space for um, unforeseen outcomes. In in my opinion, in in the creative process, mm -hmm. and that's the art, isn't it? Mastering the serendipity. That's how you create masterpieces. Yeah, and those are are very much like non-cerebral activities, uh, and we're all sort of so obsessed with obsessed with cerebral first. Uh, yeah. I would be a big fan of seeing um, non-cerebral forces, um, you know, yeah. have a play in it. I think that's the difficulty when we talk about artificial intelligence, because most of the time that's now just bastardized into a principle of machine learning, mm. like the notion of the algorithm to uh, quantify risk for um, the new set of vulnerable uh, COVID uh, people, you know. It's not an algorithm, it's five data points, it's a graph. <laughs> Art, and then, so when you talk about artificial intelligence and the notion that we're gonna be taken over by robots, it's like, hang on, we are the designers of the robots, duh. You know, we're evolving as we're learning how to design the robots. You know, there's, I'm a huge believer in human intelligence and the untapped potential of it. Mm. you know and what 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 we might um what we might how we might learn to uh, to evolve i guess yeah yeah there seems to be uh there seems to be some in some value in trying to actively disconnect from the sort of um list building and list achieving you know how how, how our minds are obviously evolved to like okay well here's a list of things you need to do and when that's done here's another list and another list you know, yeah. very much sort of running around chasing these lists. You know, we're very task-oriented, yeah. task-focused machines. And we don't, it doesn't seem, because there's also this huge volume of information that we now have uh, available to us. I read an interesting yeah. fact this morning that the average human now has about, I think, 75 gigs worth of data was the way they quantified it. Uh, to absorb each day, whereas in the mid 19th century, you know, that would have been the lifetime of a well-educated person. And we're, so we're sort of, you know, our limbic systems are flying, we're going through the lists, but actually we just sort of stopped and didn't go into list mode and yeah. tried to be. I think you asked me at one point on the, uh, on the questions about uh, recommending a book, and there's a great book called The Human Use of Human Beings by Norbert Weiner, with a W, and it's from about 1946. And this is my approach to automation, really, that we're not supposed to just be going through lists. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that the working class ended up stood on production lines was, was, a, was a, a moment in history. Mm -hmm. It's not what human beings are designed for. That's what robotics is for, you know. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, and again, like, um, you know, crunching huge amounts of numerical pattern data. You know, we, there's great uses for machines. It's great use for human beings as well. Mm. <laughs> and sometimes they converge and sometimes they don't. Mm. Mm.
yes, yeah, never, never, never a clean path. Yeah. All right, let's let's get on to some of the questions that I sent over to you. Um, and and talking about immersive tech, because obviously this is something you've been involved in for a long time. You know, you know, it's where my interests lie at the moment. How do you see immersive tech affecting the space you work in? Well, I think um, we're going to have to get richer and richer degrees of, of remote delivery. And I, I was running lectures in Second Life a long time ago. <laughs> so we'd all, we've all, I've already dipped my toe into this, but I see that um, there's going to be lots and lots more call for richer and richer experiences. So, for example, um, you know, talking about running um, uh, an event marketing, a brand running event marketing inside an existing platform or something I got sent this week, Earth 2. I don't know if you've come across that yet. It's a whole virtual environment where there's an economy evolving, buying and selling virtual real estate. So it's almost like the domain name flash sale um, of, of the tw 2020s rather than like what happened in the 90s. So I think we will see a matchup. I think we'll see um, a virtual Selfridges as well as a real one. Instead of having a little one, you know, chains all over the country. I saw some fantastic content when I, uh, you know, I went to India with the Department for International Trade and that was the immersive and gaming delegation. And I saw some great content out there where, um, you know, you could walk on the deck of a boat, a classy, massive super yacht, and chew, pick up a pair of Jimmy Chews and actually look at the stitching. Mm. You know, I mean, this is a, you know, um, ASOS and Boohoo think they're cleaning up. This, they need to really get thinking out of the box in terms of the user experience. Otherwise, they're going to do the opposite. The high street didn't predict um, how to move into digital very well. But these digital natives are, are, are asleep at the moment and it'll bounce back the other way. You don't want to look at rows and rows and rows of shoes. I want to walk on the deck of a super yacht. <laughs> so there's going to be more and more opportunities for commercial applications of immersive. Do you think so? Do you think that 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 destination, you know, a, a, you know, a, a metaverse of metaverses, you know, there's always been the term metaverse banded around, but actually we're probably going to end up with um, varieties of them, right? Like you could have the Facebook metaverse, you could have yeah. the ASOS metaverse. Uh, you know, I was invited to one last week called Decentraland, where they're doing uh, NFT uh, sales. You know, everyone's going crazy for um, yeah. NFT as a store of um, as a store of value this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we all know it's pretty crystal clear to me that there's going to be a, a, a big scale up in in virtual um, facilities that's likely to cover e-commerce, that's likely to cover teaching, that is likely to cover healthcare. And it's almost the exact same that we've been through already, but um, in, in 3D. And doesn't Windows 10 browser allow um, AR content to play remotely or something like that? You'll know more about that than me. But we, we're uh, in iOS does, for sure. Yeah. So we're inching closer and closer to requiring richer simulations in, in all sorts of capacities for all sorts of reasons. Uh, what do you find, uh, what do you, sorry. Okay. I think that's one good thing that we've, uh, you know, I've been trying to work remotely for two decades because I've been raising my children and I used to try, have to try and hide the fact that I was working remotely. Mm. It's just absurd. So I think the good thing is that we're recognising it's perfectly possible to, to, to work at capacity uh, in different modes. And have you tried? Have you tried any tools for remote working beyond 
be on teleconferencing? I haven't this time around because um, this, like I was saying, I was running lectures in Second Life mm. uh, over 10 years ago. Mm. And um, so I think for me, a lot of that experimentation occurred earlier on. Whereas what's happening now um, is everything's much more accessible. There are third parties like you guys making things more accessible you know, so that people can start co-creating their own version of something. Mm. So for me, it's a scale up and, a, and an accessibility and a quality thing mm. that's going on. I haven't really resorted to using it myself, but I do tend to get asked a lot about what other people might use it for. It's interesting. Mm. <laughs> and what do you find are the are the technical challenges to your work in the I mean a lot of what you're doing is is future facing yeah and is a, is, is on the R&D side yeah. that'd be fair to say I mean even yeah. the way you talk there about you know yeah. ASOS walking around you know the ship of a boat and shopping is it you know yeah. this is a logical conclusion that could still be 5 10 15 who, who knows yeah. years away um, so so yeah what, what, what do you find are, are the challenges I think my, I don't have technical challenges apart from bandwidth and interoperability. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the challenges I have is being understood. So it's, it's quite nice to have a conversation like this with someone who's been around as long as I have with all this technology. Mm. You know, I, I, my boss at work said, and I love this quote, she said, Karen, you're a nice person. Everybody likes you, but nobody has a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm like... Okay. <laughs> that, that's, that means you've, cre you've created your job. It's like, this is, the, this is the job I'm after. This is the role I, I want. To be frank, to have been designing next generation and in R&D for as long as I have, yes, I'm designing the future. I'm a futurologist. Design is always about the future anyway. Hmm. So it's kind of inevitable. And, um, and mark my words, we'll see, won't we? Uh, ASOS will be after a virtual environment much, much faster than 10 to 15 years. I predict three to five when the gloves will be well, off. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure, you know, they're obviously working on it internally. Yeah. Right? They, they, they will be try, they'll be trialing this stuff. They'll be looking at what a, what a virtual space looks like. So the, I get, the you know, the, the key is getting lots of users onboarded, isn't it? So I guess they're looking at what's our problem. Well, they don't have a problem right at the minute because presumably everything's selling as well as it can. Yeah. Um, yeah. With, with their mobile channels. It's a good example. Mm. And I don't know whether they are looking at it or not, because some of the current recruitment kind of implies not. Mm. And in the talk I gave for Big Light, I was just saying, you know, that bloody interface, that, that was a good solution mm. ages ago. Mm. <laughs> so we've already now got that you can click through and see where the van is in real time delivering. You can click through and watch a 3D render of the thing. So it's only a matter of time before you can click through and feel immersed in some sort of space because it, it does get quite tiresome um, because I've done it a lot, uh, receiving boxes and returning things mm. because the difference is often huge. Mm. So closing the difference between what you're seeing and what it's actually like when you get hold of it mm. is, is the business case. Mm -hmm. I suspect someone like Shopify probably that is the intermediary to lots of the other platforms will yeah. grab it. You know, you, you'd imagine someone like Facebook might do it, but they're, you know, they're, they're, they're so broad and so many things that it'll probably be 
someone with a specific retail focus. So, yeah. yeah, and I'm sorry I fall back on e-commerce metaphors all the time. It is in the background, but it's also an area where a lot of, um, a lot, a lot of innovation happens first because it's about making money. <laughs> so that's not necessarily, you know, great, but you can learn a lot from what brands do and what e-commerce is doing, I think. Agreed. Well, uh, and a lot around sports, actually, at the moment, we're, we're seeing some really interesting innovation in the, in the, in the sports space because people haven't been able to um, you know, get their audiences in. That's interesting, yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about that on the, on the 5G project because that enables a lot of kind of remote access. So we'll look at smart stadiums. In fact, I think somebody won a smart stadium bid. Mm. Anyway, yeah, with the notion that you can have, extend the stadium experience into virtual space, and then you don't have to have anyone in the stadium if, for example, you're in a pandemic. But usually you'd have people in the stadium, and like having a television audience, you'd have a virtual 3D um, audience as well. well. I think some of those five, yeah, some of those 5G bids were about actually just dialing up connectivity so it was almost like a bizarrely it's almost like a second screen experience while you were in the stadium so you were getting yeah, there was a lot of that as well yeah we we did have a local one i think i can't it was something to do with west sussex anyway but um there was a local one looking at how to and it was phil jones actually i think it's one of his ideas that you would um, be able to attend a virtual match so it's like an so it's like a, i don't know it's like it's it's pay-per-view on sky mm. it's very expensive to have a season ticket and then there's this middle ground where you could attend a virtual football match well that's what we've been, what we've been doing in the, in the esports space because you know we, we've been doing this esports work yeah part of audience of the future and it's like you know you can go to a physical event and you'll have a great time yeah you know, you'll you'll get the, the the atmosphere depending on you know how good your seats are uh, yeah. you might be stuck behind a, a pillar <laughs> Um, but you know you'll have a really great experience you really soak up the atmosphere but you know it might be expensive to get there or it takes a chunk of time but that's your premium experience and then in terms of esports your sort of your next experience is to uh, watch a stream of it so you've got uh, an influencer or a player watching it and giving commentary and then everyone's kind of gathering in the chat but of course the chat moves so far and there's a hundred thousand of you watching it concurrently yeah that doesn't really feel that intimate so what we've been doing um in the immersive space is allowing people to set up their own little rooms so it's like you've got your own vip box so yeah. you can then invite 10 mates and you've got a data-driven map in front of you Ooh. and all the all the data there is is current and is also predictive um, the data handling has been done by the University of York. They've got a really good, uh, you, probably know, you probably know a bunch of them, they've got a really good games department up there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's interesting, so we've got a map-driven table that's doing predictive data, we've got video feeds from the game, and then we've put off uh, other little rooms coming off the main space where you can either have a 360 feed from the stadium, which again would be enhanced by 5G, or we've built uh, team rooms, so like if you're at your uh, team's home address. Obviously, they've got big um, kind of fan zones where you can like either buy merch or you can see latest interviews, etc., etc. So you've got these little three hundred and sixty team spaces. Yeah, aren't we lucky, Tim? Well, to, work, to work in this field. We lucky because we're like two giant kids going. Oh, and then we did this, and then we thought about that, and then we tried this. Yeah. Absolutely, really bloody lucky, and especially now. I mean, you know, I'm so aware that we're so, like you said at the opening part of the interview, we're so lucky to be in this sector 
mm. you know, touch wood. So I guess what, what it's about now is how to um, support and encourage others. You know, like it, it is sad that all those shops have closed and all those people have lost jobs. And that's a big failure of C-suite to see what's been written on the wall for decades. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, there's been a real case of sort of praying that something will change or kicking the can down the road or or we'll just wait till they become more valuable as residential and flip them over at that point. You know, it's, it's, I mean, Debenhams had a permanent online fire sale. So it was like a, they'd crash their own brand value because they didn't have a joined up approach to the yeah. digital and the physical. And this will be, again, to the digital and the immersive and the physical. It all needs to join up as one user experience and one branded customer experience. It's, it's so tough, though. Because it's so tough to convey this to entrenched systems or anyone right because we won a innovate award with john lewis in 2015 oh my god and and we and 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 we based it around um furniture yeah big ticket items because actually to to sort of get any get any kind of return it had to be well you had to need to sell something that was kind of 400 quid yeah and we built up, you know, uh, basically did a, a, a house based on their new furniture range called the Design Project. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, okay, go into this nice house. You can change all the materials. You can change the lighting, time of day. You know, it was a showroom for furniture. And, uh, and I remember pitching them, you know, this, this concept and even had like a breakdown of some numbers of going, okay, so what you need is you almost need like a... Um, like a, um, a an express style store, you know how you get those, those Marks and Spencers expresses yeah. at yeah. Uh, at the train stations. Well, guys, when you used to go to train stations, I, I think they're still there. You get those kind of you know twelve hundred, fifteen hundred square foot kind of spaces that are express style. And I say to John Lewis, you should get some of these small spaces, and you put like uh, samples of the furnishings on the wall so people can you know, feel, touch, smell, all that, yeah. and then you can have three different areas for people to go and experience uh, these virtually. It'll cost you about half a million a year, but you can then work out if it actually generates any revenue for you. And at the same time, they're doing their strategy in 2015 was like, we're going to open the biggest, most kick-ass stores that we can that are going to be half a million square feet and they're just going to be... Do you remember when they did, they did that little that little run of like, oh my God, John Lewis is just trying to be Harrods. You know, they're just opening this massive store in Oxford. They were going to do one in Brighton. And yeah. I was standing there going, you need to try this with this express style store. They're like, no, no, we're just going to go and blow 200 million. Yeah, and you treated like the friend, fringe lunatic, like nice to have dabble at the edges. And it's like, haven't you noticed what happened to Blockbuster? Yeah. What happened to HMV? They were just stood there waiting to drop off the edge of a cliff. And now they have, all of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, John Lewis, I feel some sympathy for, because um, it would have been compounded by, obviously, COVID. You know, you've got stores that side. Of course, and that, that wasn't foreseeable. Yeah. But I think it's inexcusable to have been in receipt of the salaries that the C-suite of these organisations are in receipt of and not have mitigated... People underestimate the impact of digital all the time. It's the equivalent to the invention of a wheel, right? You're still building pyramids, rolling your blocks on logs. And we're today with loads of wheels. Mm-hmm. You perhaps want a wheel. Or, you know, it, that's the scale of the impact on culture, society, and the economy. 
and it's consistently underestimated. No one understands what we understand of how do yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's very true, isn't it? When you, when you stop and look at it in the, in the macro yeah. scale, because we're all so obsessed with, okay, well, what, what changes can I enforce? What can I make happen today? What can I make happen this fortnight, this month? If you yeah. just brain it back and go, well, you know, dig digital, we say, right, it's been around 30 years, really. It, it, yeah. you know, obviously, it's been around 50, 60 years. Well, yeah. In terms of kind of, mainstream use you could yeah. take it to 30 years and it's you know, a tiny amount of time well i had um, friends and neighbors who wouldn't i mean i suppose it's different now but at the time like 15 years ago they wouldn't let the kids play on any digital tools at all mm. and i was thinking but well, that's a bit like not letting them have a book and only letting them have a scroll mm. yeah 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 <laughs> you're arresting the development you're arresting the literacy it's a different form of literacy and yes we're going through the tail end of a hideous period where there's just been a, a vomit of, of junk going into digital form. But I feel that we're now at a tipping point. We're going, you know, that, that's racial harassment or that's likely to incite a riot, mentioning no names. And then so we're starting to look at what's ethical and preferable and try and digitally transform some of our social values into the space. Because it's, it's another, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's a, an evolution. Mm. I think the same thing could be happening in, in crypto. I mean, that's another conversation. And I haven't been bullish on that space at all until recently. Yeah. Um, where I suddenly went, oh, <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's another conversation. But, but an interesting one. Um, yeah, what, what project that you've worked on would you say had gave the sort of biggest influence or had the biggest change to your own working practice? Yeah, the, the most, when I read that, I thought, oh my God, where do I start? And then it was actually a no contest. In 2009, I started working with Emotive Epoch Brain Computer Interface. And I had one master's student who could move an image by thought whilst wearing this headset and it gave him a cracking headache and we ran this open schools day at Kingston we had like a 114 seat games lab massive place and we ran this schools day and um, all the staff came in and the student was at the front and he managed to move this image by thought hmm. and the staff we were nearly crying it was like oh my god we're in Star Trek he's moved an image by thought and the student all the kids were like and <laughs> yeah, yeah. kind of this really memorable moment for me in my whole career because for our generation moving an image by thought was so utterly fundamental and simultaneously for school kids not a big were, deal no no they were just like well go on then <laughs> <laughs> now draw something yeah what's the rest you know and people like paul brown professor of computational neuroscience at Sussex for decades, was working on um, getting AIs to draw. You know, he spent his life doing this. Mm -hmm. And then there we are um, with something seemingly so simplistic and immediate for, for children. And for us as adults, it was absolutely monumental. And was, and so, and was, did it seem such a, a, an epoch because it was the, the, the fusing of, uh, human um it, it would be with, yeah. with digital essence yeah. for me it would be i mean even to this day i can say to someone yeah you can move images by thought and they go what mm. what and it's like well you have to wear something unless you're elon musk and you dig a hole in the head of a pig which is totally unnecessary you could have just clipped something on it on its head instead mm. you know 
Um, but then we started to realize that it was harder to move an image, and this is the, my absolute passion now, it's harder to move an image of a box than it is to move an image of a balloon or a feather. Right. I get that. Yeah. So that is a quantifiable measure of an, of an aesthetic, mm. of a concept. Mm. And we don't know what discipline this is. It's not, is it psychology? I don't know. It, you know, what is it? Do we even care what it is? But then I started making optical illusions where you moved a ball and the more it looked like the ball was moving, you just got this massive feedback loop. So you actually had a singularity then mm. between the output of your brain and the input of your eyes with the machine. Mm. Yeah, what do you think of all the Neuralink work? I'm not a fan of Elon Musk. I'm not a fan of any frat boys who start off with a few million in the pocket, to be honest. Mm. <laughs> Let's get that out there, Kaz. <laughs> no. To be serious, I feel that there's um, a lot of cavalier behaviour mm. in and around the mythology mm. of the archetype coming out of the uh, West Coast. Mm. Um, for example, Tesla's going to market um, based on computer vision when I knew and everyone who worked in computer vision knew that the system wasn't intelligent enough to tell the difference between a patch of sky, the side of a lorry or a giant piece of cheese. Mm. Because all it would see is a flat, neutral space. Yeah. Mm. Hence, people were killed. Mm. So this dialogue is starting to come out now about, you know, there needs to be levels of user testing for health and safety, if not ethics. Mm. And I was watching that documentary the other night about um, Elizabeth um, Theranos. Is it Elizabeth? Oh, what, the, or the blood, blood, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, the Nosferatu. I haven't read the details, but even just like knowing the bare facts, you're like, well, you know, she, she did something. <laughs> Absolutely unbelievable. I've watched the documentary twice and now I've ordered the book. Right. Because <laughs> I'm just like, what? Yeah, amazing. Yeah. yeah. I'm much more a fan of people like your good self. Oh. Rolling sleeves up, getting on with it and making a, a steady and valuable and ethical long-term contribution to, to whatever it is that we're living through. Nice. Thank you, Karen. We don't need no uh, star boys, do we? Or even girls. No, I mean, you look at some of the, 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 the progress that's being made, though, on multiple fronts. I mean, I think the archetype is interesting. I'm also interested in the, the ethics. I mean, the ethics is a, is a much bigger uh, conversation, and it's much easier to be a judge of your own ethics rather than trying to come down with kind of universal yeah. laws, I think. Um, it's not doesn't it? Well, you know, I was reading with, uh, about Gabe Newell this week, who was saying that you know brain interfaces are much closer than anyone suspects and if you're in game development and your studio isn't looking at um, uh, brain interface or mind tech interfaces then it's kind of game over for that student studio no pun intended um well oh, actually that was his phrase his phrase was when this stuff takes off it's it, it's game over for um for screens and yeah. that, that, that slight ethics piece of I mean, we all alter our reality all the time. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, I guess, I guess it's like one of those things until you try it, you don't know. You know, I, you know, yeah. I put a headset on and I've been in other places and it's created nice sensations and I've really enjoyed the experience. Um, 
what's the difference between having a, a visual stimuli and a, and, a, a, yeah. and a direct stimuli other than my own sort of innate queasiness around the idea of that? No, from decades in simulation that we basically cognitively and emotionally and physically respond the same to a sim as we do to something real to a very great extent. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to my, the original thing, autopoiesis. We're self-making. What sort of self are we making? Mm. This is the actual core issue of, of my research interest, really. And, uh, and, uh, and a lot of the times, the answer is we don't know. So what we have to do... Um, I think that's such a great question, though. What sort of self are we creating? Yeah. Yeah. So what are you, uh, what are you curious about at the moment? That's a good question, isn't it? I'm, I think my answer is everything. I'm always curious about everything. I have to try and stop myself being curious to have a little bit of a bloody rest. <laughs> I'm always my nose into all sorts. I think what's most important to me at the moment is how we migrate. It's like the digital transformation of law. How do we move policy and ethics and law into uh, digital domains? What, how do we start to measure what is and isn't okay? For example, the Tesla car. That Tesla car should not have gone to market. I could have told you, and loads of people could have told you it wasn't safe. For example, a biometric uh, reading of eyes, um, it doesn't work on very dark eyes. So it's being rolled out in Nigeria as a security measure, but the difference in uh, the, the, the capacity of the system to read difference in very dark eyes is very severely reduced. So the risk of um, error of who's who is very, very high. It shouldn't be being rolled out um, in, in uh, it shouldn't be being rolled out at all, should it? actually shouldn't be being rolled out because we don't know what the implications are of its error rate because it hasn't been tested mm. it's a free market economy mm. well, yeah, someone, someone's got a deal to implement it haven't they exactly and it, i said hang on a minute you know can we just hang on a minute it, why you know we we um i think this was the summary of the end of the documentary elizabeth um holmes the, the blood woman as we shall call her she um it, you know it was like um you know, Silicon Valley is really good at doing apps and emojis. But the minute it started getting into, for me, the minute it started getting into social applications like Airbnb and all the rest of it, um, then you're moving into a different domain. What do you think of Airbnb? Me? Hmm. I've actually used it um, in the last couple of years, but as a, a business, as a piece of design work, I don't like Airbnb or Uber because they were designed on a desktop for a desktop. So once they hit social application they kind of de especially uber decimated the livelihoods um, of a number of taxi drivers or for example you know you should be working with london cabbies you should be working with tuk-tuk drivers but because these companies are bankrolled they, they don't even care they don't care who gets killed they don't care who gets sued they don't care who loses the uh, source of income mm totally socially irresponsible and it's not acceptable at scale in particular so that's a that's a, a, an element of your work that i haven't i haven't perhaps to my detriment haven't fully put, picked up on like the the the, the social contracts the social context so kind of extended human factors really because if I, because I'm kind of so obsessive about these things, if you really address human factors properly, you're addressing social, cultural, ideological, political, all sorts of uh, messy, messy things. 
that you can't really do human factors without being social. And is there an example of where that has been put front and centre of a of a project and deployed other than in R and D and and deployed with, with okay. results? So it's, it's sort of combined efficiency yeah. with uh, with um, social outcome. Well, I'm going to actually plug um, Nest now, the workplace pension. <laughs> and as a small business owner, you might have come across it as an extra task. Yeah. Yeah. But I've recently been um, delighted to have, been, to have joined their board of non-executive directors and trustees as the person with the eye to customer experience because the Nest project is a social change project. Mm -hmm. And it's about educating people on low to middle incomes about how to manage money effectively. And yes, it's to show up a pension deficit because there's hardly any of Generation X and there's loads of millennials and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. But the people who've developed the uh, policy are incredibly ethical. And that what we're trying to do now, because they did a, a, a big, massive database build, but the next five years is looking at becoming really customer focused and, and, and hopefully having a, a feedback loop into policy. So the reason I was interested, not only because there's 9 million users and that's the kind of problem I like, yeah. it's because um, there's a potential link for user-driven policy. So if we, if we get the migration and the evolution of the service, because it's a digital-first service, yeah. then we are looking at, you know, imagine if universal credit was becoming a, 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 a user-centred um, design yeah. project. Yeah. It would be well, well needed, isn't it? That kind of thinking is, is well needed. Yes. And it is, it is, it exists at DWP through the Nest project. So, um, Nest is well ahead of its time, and I'm hoping that it's going to be setting some standards for, for other things coming out of the public sector. That's good to hear because it, it, it seems such a, such a small thing or a thing that's left with the individual, isn't it? You know, plan your own future yeah. uh, financial uh, independence yeah. or, or, or ability. Yeah. But when you look at the, the scale of it, right, the, the, the suffering or the, 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 the social angst it can cause if people aren't planning or if they're having trouble planning, like the feedback loop you can create there for people's wellness is yeah. massive. And yeah. then obviously it just takes a whole bunch of pressure off off the government at the end, which is all they want to see. Like, if you help people plan and have feedback yeah. in, it will yeah. save you to X trillion over 10 years yeah. Uh, yeah. In, ter in terms of, you know, welfare, et cetera. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good example to... to yeah. And I remember years ago reading a book about uh, called The Grameen Bank in India, and it was micro-lending to, to mums. And it, it had a really sustainable and scalable impact because it was a different kind of, it's a disruptive business model. I'm just thinking of the difference between um, Theranos and Nest. Yeah, it's just miles away. And, and Theranos was saying, oh, well, you know, it's like Bill Gates, it's um, like um, Steve Jobs. No, Steve Jobs had a technology that was demonstrably functional that, no, that, that the investors thought nobody would want. Theranos we're leveraging a big emotional issue around healthcare in the US that everybody wanted with no demonstrable technology. It's the reverse of Steve Jobs. Like it's the reverse of Nest. Nest is, is a social, yes, it's gonna save money for the government, but it will help the people whose behavior is changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we need more policy like that. I shall feedback. Let them know. More policy, please. Um, I've, got, I've got a random question for you here. If you could have a billboard with anything on it to help build reality, what would that be and why? 
Uh, well, do you know, I've, it reminded me, I did do a piece of artwork across nine Russian cities about 15 years ago on electronic billboards. Right. And what it had on it, it rotated. It was like a, a fiery cross and it, it went through black and gold and then it became blue and white. And the, it said, stay cool and be positive. And it just went mesmerized. Stay I, would, cool. I would expect nothing less, Karen. It's not just in print saying stay cool and be positive. It's, no, uh, it's a big flashing cross of fire. I love it. In nine Russian cities. And if you had 100 million to spend on a social program with, Ooh, no, yeah. red with no red tape, how would yeah. you spend it? My brother-in-law, who unfortunately um, is no longer with us, uh, is West African, and he uh, invented a borehole, uh, a, a tool to drill a borehole off the back axle of a vehicle. So for me, water is the number one answer. So I would scale up the borehole drilling tool thing and, and roll it out through WaterAid. Then also um, w women's rights and especially young women's rights with regards access to education and uh, the chance to have an autonomous life where you make your own decisions. Mm. And then I think it'd have to be also uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, say, ambassadors uh, in decision-making uh, capacity in, in key organisations. Lovely. Can I spend it three ways? That's very yeah, ambitious. Yeah, you can. That sounds like a great split. It's, it's hitting all the essential That's what I thought. human groups, isn't it? Need water, need yeah. presentation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like it. And then I'm, I'm really interested to know um, both on what theories you might have to share. Yeah. And you've already recommended a book. So when we talk about the theories, the one I really like is Solomon's Paradox. It's like, why is it easier to give everyone else good advice than give it to yourself? <laughs> well, it's funny because I had a couple of examples recently where I'd given friends advice and suddenly thought, Karen, you'd do well to listen to that. That's really good advice, yeah. Solomon's Paradox, but I do now, so I can sound way more educated. Well, you can imagine I am uh, swimming in theories, but yeah. I think if I had to share um, two, it would be um, the, the concept, actually, from Marshall McLuhan, that the medium is the message. And that, that's again, like what are we creating with our media technologies and who are we becoming as a result? So the medium's the message. And then also Shannon and Weaver's uh, Mother of All Models, which is from in information theory. And it's about transmission, reception and feedback. Hmm. And it's how you send a, a, a message. Okay. I'll look into those. It's a model for interaction, really. That's, I think, why I like it. Can you, can you break it down a little bit? Does it just talk about... Well, it has lots of different variations to it. And it came out of t the evolution of telephone, tele tele telephony, telephones. So it was the idea that someone was sending a, a message, someone was receiving a message, and in the middle there would be um, uh, feedback, mm. and that there's, a, that there's a loop. And then it goes on and it gets evolved in all sorts of different ways. But um, there's also something called Shannon Entropy, which I can't actually pull to mind and I think it's about lag or um, you know um, what what does and doesn't get communicated and I think we're experiencing a lot of this through the lockdown it's very very hard to communicate through videos mm. uh, you know like we, when you have too many emails you just read the top three lines and leap to conclusions mm. I feel like that's now what we're doing through videos mm. so if anyone wants to look at um, the mother Claude, Claude Shannon and uh, somebody Weaver 
mother of all models. Again, it's from the 50s and, and the notion of Shannon Entropy. We'll dig out some links to those. And books. You, you recommended one um, a little bit. Uh, I did. Norbert, Norbert Weiner was my previous recommendation. The Human Use of Human Beings. It's in Praise of Automation. It's from the 50s. And then I've just mentioned Marshall McLuhan and um, Understanding Media, the Extension of Man, 1968 or something. And then finally, especially for your audience, I think this is 1989 or something, Brenda Laurel, Computers as Theatre. Nice. It is nice. And it's been ever so fringe. And I think she uses the phrase experience design, and it's a good few years before Nielsen Norman used it. And I'd been talking about um, the notion that they were digital created this um, hyper architecture of audio, visual, spatial, you know, mashup thing. That's what I was, on, and so she captured that for me, computers as theatre, because they're spatial and then active. So add those to the reading list. Ooh. Thank you, Karen. It's been wonderful to talk to you. I've really enjoyed just being able to spend some time chatting with you. It's it's really nice. Yeah, fabulous. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Lovely. Thanks very much. Bye.